Hello and welcome to Crossview Radio, a weekly podcast for Wayne County. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We exist to glorify God by exalting Christ and magnifying the gospel for the joy of all nations. I am particularly excited about today's episode because I'm joined by a friend and author, Dr. Mark Ward. Mark is a blogger at ByFaithWeUnderstand.com. He builds church websites. He works for Faith Life in Washington as a Logos Pro, and he's the author of several books, one of which is entitled Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for having me to your amazing little studio here, John. Glad to have you, Mark. Mark, uh, before we get started today, one of the things I wanted to ask you to kind of help some people kind of understand uh, what it is you do, what what uh, what do you do at Logos? What's a Logos Pro? Well, I failed to tell you they just stripped me of that title, <laughs> and I don't know what my new title is, but basically what I have been doing and what I'm still doing with whatever my new title will be is helping people to learn to use Logos Bible software, and it can be called Logos or Logos, either is fine, and I do it by writing articles. So I write articles about Bible study in order to show off what the software can do. Sometimes the articles are almost solely about Bible study, and all they do is link to something that we sell, a, a commentary or a or some kind of reference work. And sometimes I dig more into direct instruction in my articles on the Logos blog and in our Bible study magazine and in our Didacticos magazine, which is for seminary professors. I'm just all the time getting to study the Bible and tell other people how to do it in Logos. Well, great. I would uh, highly encourage anyone to uh, check out uh, some of the blogs that Mark writes. Uh, you do a great job. And uh, I use Logos uh, basically every day. Uh, they're not compensating me for this at all, but I would say check out the software. It is uh, it is great software and uh, something that uh, is part of uh, part of my uh, daily routine uh, as I study and prepare for sermons. So thank you for your contribution through that, and uh, in particular through your new book that uh, is uh, is coming out here called Authorized. Mark, can you explain a little bit to us maybe um, maybe what the book is about and what kind of prompted you to write this book? Yeah, ultimately what prompts me in just about everything I do is a desire to see people read and understand the Bible. And uh, in my heart right now, I'm thinking, and I want to read and understand the Bible. Here comes the new year. And one of my, I don't really set resolutions, though I'm not against it. In fact, I really like your Facebook posts where you uh, give us Jonathan Edwards resolutions one at a time. Um, I look for that. But one of the things I want to do is listen to the Bible on audio this year as a means of trying to cover more of the territory of the Bible. Um, and I'm called to be a Bible teacher in the church, Logos, the, the whole company, Faith Life, that owns Logos Bible software. Our mission is to equip the church with technology um, to, uh, to grow in the light of the Bible. And that's my personal mission too. So what the book grew out of that desire, I saw that people who are unaware of the existence of other good Bible translations or, um, you know, just kind of grew up on the King James, like I did, were missing things that they, I didn't think they realized they were missing. Of course, that can happen with anything that you grew up with. You, you sing a hymn and you sing it a hundred times growing up and you don't realize, you don't understand, be thou my vision, you know, not be all else to me, save that thou art. And that's bad when it's a hymn, but it's really bad when it's the Bible. We want to understand this. Um, and 
I wanted to write a book that helps people see areas of misunderstanding that I don't think they would see otherwise. And with that, uh, you want to write a book to help people see areas of misunderstanding. I felt like in a lot of ways this book, and, and you can kind of correct me here uh, on, on your thinking on this, but I felt like it wasn't as much directly about the KJV, though it was about that, but more like um, you were using the King James Version as a case study to help us become better Bible readers, better Bible understanders, better students of God's Word, if I can put it that way. Is that accurate? or? Yeah, especially when you get toward the end and the final chapter and the epilogue where I try to say constructively, okay, given what I've said about the King James and particularly the differences uh, between the English of today and the English of 1611 when the King James was released, given all that, what should we do? And my positive, constructive advice is to use the embarrassment of riches that we have among the many good English Bible translations. I think a lot of people are afraid. They look out, a lot of Christians are afraid. They look out at all the Bibles out there and think, you know, which one is right? When if they would just go to their bookstore, um, Christian bookstore, or even Walmart and grab whatever's on the shelf, if that's all they did, they would they would get valuable. In fact, I think for um, for non-specialists, you know, people who don't read the Greek and Hebrew, God hasn't um, called them to do that. The best tool they have for good Bible study, I really think, um, is using multiple Bible translations. One of the things that I, I want to commend and appreciate about the book was just the spirit of grace. I think that that it was written with. It wasn't um, it wasn't highly academic in, in the terms of uh, you're using Greek and Hebrew, where it's, it was a book that the common man could read and understand. And and I, I appreciated the the grace as well that that um, you used to uh, not bash. There was no mudslinging or anything like that. Uh, I recently was uh, talking with a guy who was pretty committed to the King James Version. And as we were engaging in conversation, one of the things that he mentioned to me was that in the preface to the KJV, it says that this uh, Bible is translated out of the original tongues. And he had thought, he had misunderstood and thought that that meant out of the original manuscripts. In other words, he thought, you know, we had the actual letter uh, of Paul to to Romans in the actual ink and the actual paper that he used. And so when other translations would um, translate things differently or perhaps include or exclude different textual variants, it was like the the actual word of God was being assaulted. And once he realized that that wasn't the case, his his attitude changed, and and he um, he began to be more receptive to other translations and those kinds of things. But the, the reason I bring this up is because what I noticed in that situation was that we had a shared value. We both loved the Word of God, and I like that about him, and and I like that about people. And so in in that scenario, how are you engaging that kind of a person, the, the person yeah. who maybe they 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 love the King James Version, maybe they're a little misinformed, but our values are the same. We both right. love God's Word and we want to preserve it. Well, there are a couple ways that I appeal to someone in that situation, and that is basically, I would say, the situation that I was in in later high school. 
Um, and we probably need to bring up now the elephant in the room. There is such a thing as King James onlyism. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, um, some of whom I know very well and love personally because they raised me and taught me in Christian school in Northern Virginia between 1993 and 1997, and I still keep up a relationship with them. Uh, in fact, I mentioned them in the acknowledgments of this book because they helped teach me that value that you're mentioning, yeah. a value of the Word of God. Nonetheless, um, I, I can't get around saying, okay, ultimately, I think they're wrong to insist on exclusive use of the King James Version. And in fact, you're right, John, that almost always, I, I'm, I'm going to say always, when I dig down in conversation with these brothers and sisters in Christ, there are some fundamental misunderstandings going on. And most most frequently in the mainstream of King James onlyism, those misunderstandings do have something to do with the Greek New Testament. And the f- simple fact is that most Christians are not called to read Greek. And that's okay. God does not require that of us. He's actually given us a Bible that's in Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New. So very few people in the history of the entire world have grown up speaking both of those languages. Everybody who reads the Bible, therefore, is going to have to read a translation. And therefore, you're going to have to trust somebody that they're doing it right. And often what I find is if somebody's kind of lost in those weeds of, well, you know, aren't aren't the new translations based on inferior Greek manuscripts? By all means, yes, they ought to receive some instruction. But some of that instruction is very detailed and complicated. And I'd like to pull us back a level and ask, okay, look at the people, the Christian people, who made the English Standard Version or the New International Version or the New American Standard Bible, the standard evangelical translations that are sitting on Christian bookstore shelves. Look at the other things they've written, the commentaries that are actually right now surrounding me in your office, the systematic theologies that I can see. These are the men and women who worked on these translations. Are they trustworthy? Would they, if they had access to uh, the right manuscripts, would they purposefully choose the wrong ones? Hmm. No, that, that's a that's kind of conspiracy theory thinking. They're trying to do what's best for you. So um, let, let's set... These modern translations in that context first. You're going to have to trust somebody. Why would you distrust the the people who put together these modern translations? I'd love to meet a person like you described who has some mistaken ideas but would actually talk to me and, Mm -hmm. and get corrected on some of them. Frequently, however, I find that people are so scared, that, mm-hmm. and I totally understand this. I was there. They don't want to listen to that detailed stuff that they can't really follow anyway about Greek. So the other thing I'd say about this is in this book, I said, okay, we're not going to talk Greek and Hebrew at all. I have one tiny little section on textual criticism in, in which I basically dismiss it as an issue for uh, regular people who go to church. Um, and I say instead... Let's talk about something that you can understand very well. You don't read Greek, fine. You don't read Greek or Hebrew, fine. But you can understand English. And you should be able to look at the King James Version and discern, this is unnecessarily difficult English for me. Um, even if you grew up on it and are therefore better at it than others, and I was, I, I at least hope I was, I grew up on it and I can still read it today. But I've, I've come to realize that there were many things that I was missing that I didn't realize And that's where this book aims, helping people who grew up on the King James see things that, wow, oh, I didn't realize all my life I was missing this. 
um, so that they can clear their minds and be able to come to the conclusion, yeah, you know, I really ought to be reading a Bible translation in my English. Not to say that we're going to get rid of the King James, just to say let's add in these other Bible study resources, the contemporary translations. So let's talk for uh, a moment there because you're talking about having uh, a Bible translation that's that's understandable in my English. And, and one of the first things that uh, will often be said is, you know, oh, I can understand it just fine. I want to talk a little bit about something that you have addressed in your book called False Friends. Uh, words that are still being used today, but their their meaning has changed. Can can you explain what this concept of false friends, w- what this is all about, and then how this impacts this issue of Bible translations? Sure. Maybe the easiest way for me to explain that is to contrast false friends with the kind of change everybody knows is in the King James and nobody um nobody denies. And that is that there are words that have just dropped out of our language. So, uh, collop and trow and leasing with, uh, as a word to mean lying, not leasing a car or a donkey. Um, we say braze, but in Proverbs 27, 22 in the King James, though thou shouldest bray a fool in a mortar among wheat with a pestle, yet will not his foolishness depart from him. The word bray clearly doesn't mean a donkey making that sound there. We know when we run across a word, besom, chambering, wantonness, we know when we don't use those words anymore. We've never heard them maybe outside reading the King James. Everybody realizes that's a problem, and so there are resources out there uh, for people to look up these words. I say in the book that I don't think people realize what resource they ought to be using. Um, nonetheless, people are aware of this problem. However, what I don't think they're aware of is how many words in the King James are words that meant something different back in 1611, and we still use them. They're common words today, but we don't have access to the senses that they did. What really got me onto this, I mean, there's quite a number of of these kinds of stories and examples in the book, Um, and it's a short book. I had to try not to pack it with too many examples, but I tried to give enough to show that this happens a lot. Uh, I remember sitting at my desk writing Bible textbooks for a Christian publisher and coming across 1 Kings 18.21, where Elijah says on Mount Carmel as he's speaking to the priests of Baal, how long halt ye between two opinions. If I said he's speaking to the priests of Baal, he's not. He's speaking to the people of Israel. He's near the priests of Baal. He says, if the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. That word halt. Um, You've already read the book, John. So I'm wondering, though, if you remember before you read the book, what did you think that word halt meant? It sounds like stop. Right. So, you know, we use that word traffic ground to a halt. Mm -hmm. Or we're kind of we think we're clever because we remember in these old medieval dramas that the guard at the moat at the castle will say, halt, who goes mm-hmm. there? It means stop. And that's what I always assumed that Elijah meant. How long halt ye between two opinions? In other words, how long are you going to stop here, standing in the middle between serving God or serving Baal? And that's not a radical misunderstanding of the passage, but I'm totally missing not only what the... Um, what the King James translators said, but what ultimately the the writer of scripture said. The King James tra- translators got it right. Their word halt back then meant limp. 
and I read this in a modern translation, the English Standard Version in this case, and I saw how long will you go limping between two opinions, and I thought, wait, that's not right. Why doesn't it say stop? And I realized, oh, the King James in the Gospels will say Jesus healed the halt and the blind, in other words, the lame. And that's what the King James translators meant. Uh, they meant limp. The word has just changed over time. So it's not their fault. You're it's saying not their it's, fault. The, it's the unpredictable change in the English language, it's like a moving target, you're saying. Exactly. And it's not our fault either. I mean, why should it be our responsibility to keep up with all the tiny little meaning changes in English? We Nobody could possibly do that. Even specialists can't keep it all in their heads. We speak our English, not theirs. And I polled actually dozens of very smart people, almost all of whom grew up on the King James, and almost all of them, not all, I think there were three who got it right. Two of them were scholars. One of them, I think, was just lucky. <laughs> the scholars read Hebrew and actually knew what this meant, yeah. but everybody else got it wrong. And I'm saying it's not their fault. It's not the King James's fault. The King James translators did just fine. It just happens. English changes. So the problem is you come to this passage about halt, and because we still use it in our in our current English, and yet the meaning has changed, we don't even think to look it up. We don't we don't think and so in other words, you're 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 opening really the possibility that there there could be dozens, hundreds, who knows how many of these words that that meant one thing in sixteen eleven, and yet now we we have enough of a we still use it enough to where um, we think we know what it means, and yet we walk away from that text not knowing what it means. Right, and and I really want to be careful here. I don't want to claim more than the truth. Do I think that you can grow up on the King James and come to a knowledge of salvation, come uh, to receive grace from God through these precious words? Absolutely, yes. It happened to me. I'm talking about a lot of minor things. Mm-hmm. A couple of those things, however, I would say are more significant. For example, in the New Testament, words like chambering and wantonness, you know, chambering means something like immorality. And if Paul's going to tell us not to engage in it, I'd like to understand that. You know, there's another word where that's not exactly a false friend. It's one that, well, it's not a false friend. It's just a word that's dropped out. But there are words like that, like in Ephesians 5, um, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. And I feel like uh, under our current understanding of the way we use the word convenient, he just like pulled the rug out from the serious things he just said. He says filthiness and foolish talking and jesting are not convenient. Like, okay, so they're okay sometimes, but... Uh, but generally not expedient. Mm-hmm. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, don't do them. Right. That's a pretty weak word as far as we're concerned, but that's not what the King James translators meant. They chose a word which mean, meant something different. It's not suitable. It's not fitting. Um, and our people are massively misunderstanding the Bible because they read the King James. I'm going to say no. Are they missing a lot of little things they don't realize they're missing? A lot of little things that add up over time? I'm going to say yes. And that's, again, uh, just to... to touch on this point again. I appreciate the the grace that you've written this this book with. I want to talk about one more false friend from 1 Thessalonians 5:22 where it says abstain from all appearance of evil. You bring this up in the book and uh to our modern ears uh appearance this is a verse that's been used 
uh, at least I've heard it used, to, to teach us to avoid things that maybe aren't necessarily evil, but they could appear to be evil to others. Is that? I did a little more poking into this one, actually, after I finished the book. And I'm going to have to say that, uh, well, I, I stand by what I said in the book, which was, and I've got it right in front of me, to be honest, I'm not perfectly certain what it means. And actually, that's a difficulty. I, it is possible that the King James translators meant what we all in the Christian community who've grown up in the King James tend to use this verse to mean, namely what mm-hmm. you just said. You know, don't do, even stay away from things that look evil, whether they're evil or not. That's possible. And that appears to be a possible reading of the, the Greek word underlying this uh, word appearance. But when I looked at the Oxford English Dictionary, the standard, premier, exhaustive, authoritative, and expensive <laughs> English dictionary that I couldn't afford, but um, I, my local library system has, an, has a subscription that I, what I, that I use religiously, um, I saw that there are other possibilities there. Um, and I think I, I actually, you, you caught me in a little bit of an awkward spot here, John, <laughs> but, but, you, but you better keep this in to show that I'm trying to be an honest author. Uh, because I'm actually leaning towards saying that I was wrong to put it in my list of false friends, that probably the King James translators did mean what we okay. take it to mean. However, the question then becomes, well, what did Paul mean? Mm-hmm. That's the most important question. Sure. And although in the book I don't criticize the King James, I, I don't think, even once for making you know a bad translation, this is one place where... I don't think I'd criticize the King James and say they were wrong, but I would just point out that almost every other translation that we respect, you know, uh, from the contemporary times has gone with abstain from every form of evil or every kind of evil. And that is, that is very different. It's, mm-hmm. um, and, and sometimes these questions that come up, you know, what does the King James mean here? Um, even if we don't come to a firm understanding of what the King James translators meant, because it's hard to access their English when you really get down to the finer points. At at least, though, it can help us to come up with questions we might not have thought to ask otherwise about what does this passage mean. And then by comparing translations, we can tend to come to a good answer. Mm -hmm. So, although you caught me, and I've actually changed my mind to a degree, okay? I'm going to hedge this a little bit. I will still end up saying that I'm not perfectly certain. It's possible in my mind that we're misunderstanding the King James translators. It's also possible that uh, the King James translators went for uh, a less likely possibility in this okay. uh, passage. Well, so so this brings up another point, though, um, and I, I've got on my desk over here a printout of... Um, all probably about what five or six different translations as I was doing my sermon prep uh, for this past week and then uh, for this coming Sunday. And one of the things that and, and I've always I've always um, referenced other translations when I prepare. But after I read your book, I thought you know I'm just going to print these out and I'm just going to have them all in front of me. And, and this is going to be where I'm going to spend a, a good chunk of time this time to just compare these. And if for no other reason. When I was looking at these different translations, just having it written in just a slightly different way kind of triggered me to think, oh, yeah, you know, this is – and and, it, and then it, it prompts me to actually dig in and find out what those words mean even more. So in this instance, if we're looking at the word appearance and I'm seeing form in another translation, that's going to be a prompt for me 
to say why did they come up with a different uh, translation here. Let's dig into this word a little bit more. And so I just felt like that was uh, a tool to sharpen even my own skills as I study the word. What then is the the use? And, and l- let me maybe ask the question this way, because I tend to be uh, someone who sticks to more of the literal translations. You know, I, I like the ESV. I like the NASB. Uh, and, and just, again, maybe transparency on my side, I'm a, I've been a little bit more reluctant to use a more functional or, or, or paraphrase type version like, let's say, the New Living Translation or the, the NIV. How are those translations helpful to us, to, to someone who may be used to more of uh, a literal translation? Well, I come from the same arena of Christianity you come from, John, and I think there is a degree of social formation that's gone on for both of us that when your whole life you're told to be suspicious of the New International Version, it's hard to shake that. And to be perfectly honest, I still feel that sometimes, and I've had to train myself not to. And here's why I've trained myself not to and how, basically at the same time. When I was 19 years old, uh, I spent 50 bucks that I barely had, which back in 1998 dollars, no, 99, what, uh, what age was I? I don't know. Around that time. Uh, that was a lot of money for me. And I got a comparative study Bible. It had the King James, the, which I'd grown up on, the Amplified Bible, which I don't actually find very useful to this day, but um, the ESV wasn't released yet, so it had the NIV and the New American Standard Bible. So I was constantly, after that, comparing these translations. And over and over again, I would find that that comparison helped me understand. Now, I'm not saying that um, one of those translations came out on top as clearly the best. In fact, over the years, although I kept looking for the best translation, I just repeatedly found I couldn't choose one. They, They were all helping me. And why, why do I need to? Why do I need to say this translation is the best one when they're all helping me understand? Let me give an example. I did grow up in the King James. I pretty much then moved to the New American Standard and the English Standard Version as my, you know, successively my main translations. But I kept using this comparative study Bible. And in my Bible software, I was always comparing translations. And in classes and seminary, I was being taught to do so. But the, the literal translations, the formal ones, were still the baseline for me. And I do stay, say in the book, I still think that's a good way to go. Mm-hmm. Use the formal translations as a baseline. But don't stop there. No one's telling you you have to stop. I was on a business trip teaching at a little Christian school conference in West Virginia. And I wanted to do my devotions, but I had packed light because it was a one-night trip. And I did not bring a physical Bible. So I was using my Bible software to read. And I came to Psalm 16, in particular Psalm 16, 6. And growing up on the King James, I was used to this wording. It said, The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. And I had just never stopped and asked myself, What lines? This is weird, but this is absolutely true. I just sort of had this vision of lines kind of falling from the sky and sort of scratching me on the back, hitting me just where my itch was. Like, the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. So I'm talking about somebody who's gone through a lot of years of seminary, and that was still what I thought. I had never patiently asked, what does Mm -hmm. this mean? 
And I happened to glance over at the new international version, and it said this, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, there are two things going on there. I'll start with the second one. One is heritage versus inheritance. In the King James, in that era, heritage uh, could mean what we mean by inheritance, something physical property that is handed down to you when your parents die or your grandparents die. Today, we don't use it that way. A heritage is an intangible inheritance. It's something Mm -hmm. like a value system um, or a set of family stories that comes down to you from your uh, forebears. So when I read the King James, that was a false friend and misled me through no fault of anybody. Mm -hmm. The lines are falling under me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a goodly heritage. That didn't incline me to think of physical property. Um, But when I saw inheritance in the NIV and when I saw the word boundary lines, it immediately clicked. Oh, okay. The author, David in this case, is saying that the boundary lines for my physical inheritance have fallen in great places. You know, it includes this oasis. It includes this great spring, let's let's say. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that misled me was that he's actually using that as a metaphor for the Lord himself. You know, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and mm-hmm. my cup. The Lord maintains my lot. Um, so... The NIV immediately cleared up this problem that I'd had an understanding. But what did it do to do that? It added a word. Mm-hmm. It added the word boundary. The boundary. The word boundary is not in there. But did it do wrong? I'm going to say no. Yes, that's more of a functional translation. Mm-hmm. But what was the upshot? It made me understand something I've been misunderstanding for decades. And that, that experience I have had repeatedly, and I just cannot be suspicious of and angry toward a Bible study tool that does that for me over and over again. I think it's helpful for Bible readers to know the difference between a formal and a functional translation, or sometimes literal and dynamic, they're called. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that they ought to be scared. I think some minimal Bible study tools, which I hope to put in my next book, <laughs> will help um, regular English Bible readers who can't read Greek or Hebrew, and that's fine, be able to use all kinds of translations to help them understand the Bible. So perhaps then the lesson is that we we understand a little bit more about whether it's more literal, whether it's more of a paraphrase, but then use it according to that. So so the NIV may, might be a little more paraphrase, NLT might be a little more paraphrase. And so maybe I read that in getting the big picture of Scripture, and then some of those words that maybe have been added, I can use those to go back to some of the literal translations and say, oh, okay, this has helped me understand this better and just using the tools that I have available to me. Yeah, I would put it a little bit differently. Overall, basically, yes, I I agree with that. Um, But it's not so clear to me that a translation that makes no sense or the wrong sense um, but is literally accurate Mm -hmm. is a good translation. Um, And in fact, though, I'd rather put it in the realm of useful, not good or bad, but useful versus less useful. The King James translators, they did not make a mistake here, and neither did the other major translations who did the same things that King King James has done by not using that word boundary. But if if by, quote-unquote, adding a word, namely boundary, the NIV actually caused me to understand, Mm -hmm. then which is the most accurate translation? Um, What a lot of people, of course, don't understand um, because it's very complicated and it involves knowing multiple languages and doing a lot of practice, is that there is no one-to-one correspondence in a translation from any language to any language. 
you have to make difficult choices. And yes, it's true that some translations, like the New Living Translation, are more paraphrastic. They are more free. Nonetheless, if they help you understand, I think that I don't want to put them down by saying, mm-hmm. well, these are just commentaries on what's, what's really the real mm-hmm. Bible, which is the literal translation. I don't, I don't see it that way. I sure. see them all as useful in different circumstances. Mm-hmm. Talk to the person here who might be listening to this and is perhaps struggling. There is a sense in which, and you, int- you, you mentioned this in the beginning when you're talking about things that we lose when uh, w- with with the King James Version falling out of use, there's a sense of a, a time-testedness, if I could put it that way, that uh, some people um, could could be afraid of, you know, there's all these translations out there, and, you know, I don't have the Word of God in front of me because now I don't know what the Word of God is. It's almost, it's, it's ambiguous a little bit. Uh, help, help that person perhaps... Um, just in their confidence that this is the Word of God that I have in front of me. Well, it is the Word of God you have in front of you. And if you need some help, I would go to the preface to the King James itself. The translators, through the mouth of Miles Smith, um, gave us some very wise words. And among them, they said something like this. And I'm going to paraphrase because, ironically enough, this is difficult English to follow. Miles Smith said... And I'm paraphrasing here, even the worst English Bible translations available contain, no, they are the word of God. And he gives this illustration. When the king speaks, the speech he delivers is still his speech, even after it gets translated into French, Dutch, and Italian. And even if certain translators are not as graceful as others, we judge something by its predominant character, not by its exceptions. A handsome man, this is straight from Miles Smith, is not considered to have lost his good looks simply because he has a few warts on his hand. That was Miles Smith's Hmm. illustration, or two illustrations, the King's Speech and this handsome man, for Bible translation. The Christian viewpoint is not and has never been and should never be that there is such a thing as a perfect translation. In order to have that, we'd have to have God re-inspire it. Hmm. That is bibliological doctrinal error. So if we don't get to have a perfect one, then we're always going to have we're always going to be um, in the same spot where we we have to trust some other people to do their best to translate the Bible for us, and and yes, the final court of appeal is going to be in the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, but I actually think that the existence of multiple Bible translations should be helpful to people who don't read Greek and Hebrew and who are worried about, well, what what's the final authority then? Mm-hmm. Because the King James translators themselves, also St. Augustine, also Miles Coverdale, who finished William Tyndall's Bible translation, which was a forebear to the King James, and many other people that I respect greatly, and I think your listeners would too, have said the same thing, and that is use multiple Bible translations in order to get to hmm. the truth. By, you know, if if this translation has a few warts on its right hand, well, then this one over here is going to have a few warts on its left, but its right hand is going to be better. And and by, by putting them both together, by using them all, you can come to even greater confidence. I also think if you'll actually sit down and do it, you listeners out there, and actually compare Bible translations, you will have my experience that much more frequently 
you come to greater confidence about what this passage means than come to less confidence. There are passages that are difficult to translate. 1 Corinthians 7 is one of them. And there are some differences between the major translations that are going to be confusing. That's going to happen. Um, God is allowed to inspire some things to be hard to be understood, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16. But the great majority of times, I'm going to say, and this is my personal experience, that you compare good English Bible translations that are available on your Christian bookstore shelves you're going to come away saying, okay, now I get it. Hmm. I see what this is going for. This this translation translated this metaphor literally. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. This translation translated it not literally. Um, they took out the metaphor, that is, and they said, I gave you hunger in all your mm-hmm. cities. By putting those two together, I can see what's going on here. Sure. I don't think people should be scared at all. I think they should be happy. They have an embarrassment of riches. They should use them. So you, just to kind of clarify this here, and I know I've heard you give an answer to this before, so, uh, and, and this is what you're saying, but just to, to solidify this for people, I'm going to ask you uh, a question. What translation is the best one? Uh-huh. Which translation is the best? Well, here's my answer. All the good ones. And how do you know which ones are good? Well, okay, the New World Translation from the Jehovah's Witnesses is bad. John 1.1, 1, 1, they changed it. That's not what John said. But... Any translation you pick up from your Christian bookstore shelf is likely to be put together by a committee of people who are highly dedicated, highly trained, and I'm, and they're not raking in cash from this, okay? Um, maybe there are publishers out there who are making too much money from Bible translations. I don't know. I have no access to that. I don't know how all the bloggers out on the internet who say that know that. Um, but I do know the translators like Doug Moo and Wayne Grudem and Vern Poitras. I have a personal friendship with Wayne Poit- or Vern Poitras. Um, they are not raking in cash. Their life's goal is to teach you the Bible. And when they help put together a new translation, that's still their goal. It hasn't changed. They haven't become money-grubbing misers at this point. Um, just go out and use these good translations. If, if you can buy it on your bookstore shelf, it's almost certainly good. If you're worried about one, it doesn't seem so good, ask your pastor. The, the next question is always, well, what about the message? You know, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. And I would say... The paraphrase um, is not a translation, and so it's not included when I say, you know, um, which translation is best, all the good ones. However, a paraphrase can be useful. It can give you new angles of understanding, fresh new eyes on a passage, and that can be useful as long as you understand this is a paraphrase and not a translation. Well, I am reading uh, for my uh, try to read through the Bible every year. We do that as a church. And uh, last year I read uh, through the ESV. This year I'm reading through a translation that I've referenced before but have never read all the way through, uh, the New Living Translation. And I just started that, so uh, partly uh, just as a response to your book and the encouragement that it was. I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk through this with me today, Mark. Uh, this book was an exciting read. If someone out there wants to get a hold of this book, where can they find this at? It will be available on upon its release date at Amazon.com. Um, you can buy paper and Kindle versions. Also at Lexum Press, which is my publisher. They've been great to work with. You can buy from them. And it is uh, going to be, be available, and it's already on pre-order right now on uh, Logos.com. So you can get it for Logos Bible Software. And that appears to be how most people are getting it right now. 
Great. Mark, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you for your excellent questions and your friendship, John. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to Crossview Radio. I'm John Marino, pastor of Crossview Church in Orville. We meet Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Orville YMCA to find out more about Crossview Church. Visit us at crossvieworville.com. Thank you.